the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I have to admit, it's a bit awkward because, as you know, we have been ordered by the governor of the state of Oregon to shelter in place. So I'm broadcasting from my home. James is engineering from his home, and Clark is putting it all together from his It's awkward, but of course, we've joined the ranks of those of you who have been doing this for quite some time. Now, James, I think you and I can converse. Uh, This is a bit awkward for you and I. I haven't seen you all day, but you and I have been in contact throughout the day. How is it for you to be uh, engineering the program from your house? Well, I mean, it's a bit more comfortable, I suppose, than uh, sitting in the studio, but uh, otherwise, uh, it is a bit awkward, and we're just kind of making our way through it, and... uh... You know, part, pardon the, uh, the the lack of uh, polish on the car, as it were, uh, but we're just trying to get from point A to point B. You know, I've completely taken over Dan Rice's place. I'm in his office. It's really his music room, and I've got my stuff spread out everywhere. I've got all of my links and all my stuff there, so I feel a bit bad taking over his place, but he's been very generous and gracious, and in fact, he brought me lunch today as I'm trying to figure out the technology and how to logistically make this all happen. So I want to say thank you to Dan Rice for giving me the freedom to um, invade his office and his space as he's retired. You know, he spends a lot of time in here during the day and we don't know how long this is going to go on. But what we do know is as long as we are ordered to shelter in place, we're going to try to do our best to continue to provide broadcasting on the Georgine Rice show. And uh, once again, James Blend is, let's see, you're producing and engineering Clark is also engineering because once you and I have done our part, this will go to his home office and he's going to do some compression and other stuff that I know nothing about before it gets to you. So um, the guys are still uh, with us and doing their jobs for which I am grateful. Uh, So I appreciate your help, James, and we're just going to press forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the one thing, obviously, that kind of goes along with this is that – in the grand scheme of things, uh, because of all the process that has to take to get this on the air and the fact that, uh, you know, we are basically uh, running uh, the ship of KPDQ without a uh, captain at the helm at the moment, uh, we are actually recording this the day of. It's not quite live, but uh, we're trying to be as close to live as possible and uh, keep the information as close to pertinent as possible. So we won't be quite as on top of breaking news if it were to occur during the course of the four to six hours that the program is broadcast. But like James says, we're going to try to do our best to do just that. So today on the program, we're going to cover the headlines. We'll uh, try to bring you up to date on so much news that's developing in the course of uh, of a day. And also want to let you know that uh, later this week, we are working on making it possible for us to continue with interviews. We'll talk with... um, Paul Totkis, he's the author of A Small Book for a Hurting Heart. Uh, We're planning on talking with him on Wednesday. And if we can arrange, uh, as we hope, uh, we'll have a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist also on 
uh, Wednesday. That's subject to change, both of those things. On Thursday, we'll talk with Tim Betcher. He and his wife have been involved in Cadence International. It's a ministry to the military. And I would imagine, given the challenge that we all face as civilians, there are some challenges unique to the military as well. We'll talk with him about that ministry. And then if we can pull it off, we'll have a fun Friday afternoon in which we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. And I promise you, yes, there is lighter news out there. We won't be covering it today, but you can count on that on Friday. First, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Senator Chuck Schumer told reporters early today that he expects Republicans and Democrats in the Senate to come together and reach an agreement on the $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus package that set off a very fierce debate on the Senate floor and allegations from both sides that the other was politicizing the emergency. It was much more cordial today. Despite the logjam, Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, they told reporters that there were there's progress being made in late uh, late night negotiations. Schumer said that he expects a vote sometime today. We'll see if that actually happens. One of the key issues in the package is the $500 billion Exchange Stabilization Fund. Democrats call it a slush fund, and claim Mnuchin would have far too much influence over which industries would have access to the fund. Mnuchin declined to uh, the claim on Fox Business, saying it's not a slush fund. It's a mechanism that we can use working with the Federal Reserve that will provide another $4 trillion of potential liquidity into the market. That's on top of the Fed's balance sheet. Now, the uh, Pelosi has also been accused of using this as an opportunity to add all kinds of unrelated things. So the back and forth has continued And we're expecting today, at least according to Mr. Schumer, that they may come up with some actual legislation passed. Other related developments, the vice president has called out congressional Democrats, saying it's time to step up and reach an agreement. The president told the Senate to stop playing partisan politics. And Nancy Pelosi's coronavirus stimulus includes return to a return of rather the Obama phones and other unrelated items, which the GOP has pointed out. Well, stock futures gained some ground as Congress moves closer to a stimulus deal. Um, the U.S. equity futures are pointing to a, uh, to a higher open when Wall Street begins trading uh, today as congressional and White House officials emerged from grueling negotiations. I mentioned a moment ago at the Capitol over that $2 trillion coronavirus rescue package. Now, this comes after the Federal Reserve promised support to the struggling economy. The major futures indexes are indicating a gain of more than 3% or around 600 Dow points. The Fed promised to buy as many treasuries and other assets as needed to keep financial markets functioning. Also, the U.S. was more prepared for the pandemic than any other country, according to a new study from Johns Hopkins. We'll tell you more about that later in the program. And the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has uh, signaled and now agreed to delaying the Tokyo Olympics over the coronavirus. That's likely to be a year. We'll talk more in detail about that in the program as well. Well, the New York City metro area has coronavirus attack rate of one per 1,000, and uh, that is a a, a developing story. And China is lifting its lockdown in the most of the coronavirus hit um, Hubei province. Well, at least the uh, $2 trillion Uh, At last, rather, the $2 trillion deal seems to be a bit closer to a passage. The real reason Democrats stopped the stimulus bill, not letting a crisis go to waste. They wanted to stuff it full of all kinds of things. We'll give you a list of some of those things later in the program. And the FEMA head says the administration will use the Defense Production Act to obtain 60,000 coronavirus tests. The president has signed an executive order to prevent price gouging, hoarding of medical supplies, and other 
um, efforts to take advantage of the crisis. And the president has turned to reopening the economy by Easter. We'll tell you what he said later in the show. Um, How is the VA preparing to uh, handle the rising rates of veterans with coronavirus, taking precautionary measures? But do they have what it's uh, going to take to make sure that these uh, first responders in our military, these veterans, are going to get the care they need? Well, the U.K. has gone into full lockdown with the public barred from leaving home for non-essential reasons, adding to the growing list. And Pennsylvania's Supreme Court greenlights a mandatory gun store closure during this season as well. Well, Gun Rights Coalition is suing Governor Phil Murphy for closing gun dealers during the coronavirus pandemic. So some things never change. And Colorado is abolishing the death penalty, the 22nd state to do so. The Olympic Games, well, they're going to be postponed. And Twitter says Beijing's coronavirus lies are just fine, especially if they're Uh, a way to bludgeon the president of the United States. And when coronavirus is through, our economy will look, well, a lot different in ways that perhaps we cannot imagine. Well, on this day in history, 1882, German scientist Robert Koch, he announces in Berlin that he has discovered the bacillus responsible for tuberculosis. On this day in history, in 1944, in occupied Rome, the Nazis execute more than 300 civilians in reprisals for an attack by Italian partisans the day before that killed 32 German soldiers. 1988, on this very day in history, former national security aides Oliver North and John Poindexter and businessman Richard II and Albert Haken, they plead not guilty to charges stemming from the Iran-Contra affair. 1989, the supertanker Exxon Valdez runs aground on a reef in Alaska's Prince William Sound and begins leaking an estimated 11 million gallons of crude oil. On this day in history, 1995, after 20 years, British soldiers, soldiers rather, stopped routine patrols in Belfast, Northern Ireland. 1998, two students, ages 13 and 11, opened fire outside Jonesboro Westside Middle School in Arkansas, killing four classmates and a teacher. 2009, citing the AIG debacle, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner and Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke, in a rare point appearance, uh, Uh, joint appearance before a House committee asked for unprecedented powers to regulate complex non-bank financial institutions. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, five former employees of imprisoned financier Bernard Madoff are convicted at the end of a six-month trial in New York City that cast them as extensions of their boss. All this in history. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue to wind our way through some of the uh, news stories and headlines of the last two days. So stay with us. You're listening, by the way, to The Georgine Rice Show, Sheltering in Place. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, where we are sheltering in place. I'm broadcasting from my home. James is uh, engineering from his, and Clark, well, he's putting it all together from his. But we're dedicated to presenting The Georgine Rice Show the best way we can under these current circumstances. We're winding our way through some of the news headlines, and uh, we'll continue to do that throughout the remainder of today's programs. Well, Democrats have introduced a progressive pork-filled stimulus bill, and that's uh, 
uh, really been at the heart of at least the Republicans' objection to it. From one story, the bill proposed by Pelosi additionally seeks to eliminate debt held by the U.S. Postal Service, requires same-day voter registration, pay off $10,000 in student debt per person, mandate that airlines reduce their overall carbon emissions by 50% by 2050, and force federal agencies to explain to Congress how they are increasing their usage of minority banks. Hmm. Another story required the uh, legislation requires a labor union representative on every airline's board of directors, multi-employer pension bailouts, uh, lacking uh, needed uh, reforms, and permanently raises the minimum wage to $15 for uh, any business that receives federal aid for COVID-19. It also includes a gift of $35 million to the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, all in the name of COVID-19. Ted Cruz says this, one of the reasons I think Senate Democrats are so willing to engage in this is that they expect the media to be utterly complicit in their cynical gamesmanship. From another story, House Majority Whip James Clyburn, South Carolina Democrat, reportedly said last week, this is a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. Hmm. From the Wall Street Journal editorial board, do Democrats even care? It isn't obvious as they pander to their progressive base to make last-minute demands while blocking the rescue, uh, the rescue uh, cash. The political chronology is instructive and depressing about the state of the Democratic leadership. Brett Hume says this, holding the bill hostage to the unrelated wish list items Democrats are trying to stuff into it is the most cynical thing I've seen since the character assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. Mark Hemingway uh, has this to say about that. What I don't understand about what happened with the legislation today, it's uh, going to be used likely with some success against congressional Dems in the fall. It seems like an obvious political blunder and they're oblivious. Nikki Haley uh, says this is beyond embarrassing and an arrogant abuse of vulnerable situation. David Harson, he says one imagines most Americans would rather rescue their jobs from the ravages of coronavirus induced downturn than lose them to uh, lose them and just get a government check. Yet on Sunday, Democrats blocked a procedural vote on a coronavirus relief package in the Senate, arguing that the fiscal rescue package favored corporations over individuals. Much um, watch um, passionate teardown of the uh, uh, the bill and the people who put it forth from U.S. Senator and Dr. Um, John Brissaro can be found online. Well, the U.S. now has the third most coronavirus cases uh, over 43,000 have tested positive in the uh, in the country. Asthma inhalers are suddenly in big demand as they can quickly help coronavirus patients who are struggling to breathe. And um, that story is, of course, developing. New Jersey is releasing about 1,000 inmates. Another reason for the Second Amendment. Crime in New York appears to be falling, however, as the disease is uh, making some a bit shy. And the CDC says the coronavirus survived in uh, Princess Cruise Cabins 17 days after the passengers left. The story notes that this is far longer on surfaces than previous research has shown. So take that into account. 17 days. Make sure you're cleaning your surfaces thoroughly. And the White House reporter, one, has uh, reported having had or having the coronavirus. Also from the story, a number of news organizations have confirmed that some of their employees contracted the virus and the WHCA has issued a new protocol for White House journalists, cutting the number of available press room seats in half, leaving a half empty briefing room as the president addresses the nation about the pandemic. And as mentioned, on the basis of the information the IOC has, postponement has been decided. That's the 2020 Olympics 
Um, a pound, who is the leader of the IOC, said in a phone interview, the uh, parameters going forward have not been determined, but the games are not going to start on July the 24th. That much I know. That's a very sad occasion for athletes who have been training, some of them their whole lives, and are at that peak at this moment. In fact, you train for that event. Um, I was an athlete in uh, high school and college, and when you have a big uh, event coming, you train for that. Uh, the level of intensity is determined by the date of the big contest. And so I know for a lot of athletes who are at their peak and perhaps for um, a year from now won't be at that same level, this is very discouraging. Although a poll apparently was taken and some 61% of athletes said that they were not comfortable competing under these circumstances and uh, would support this, um, this whole thing. Very, very sad development from my perspective. Well, as I mentioned, Johns Hopkins has published a study finding that the U.S. was more prepared for pandemic. Now, that's a general statement, a pandemic, than any other country, and that's encouraging in this current climate. Well, according to the uh, report, the United States was ranked the best prepared country in the world to handle a pandemic in late 2019 by the Nuclear Threat Initiative and Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. It's an assessment that's seemingly at odds with claims by some that the Trump administration left the country vulnerable to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. Well, the study was developed with guidance from an international panel of experts from 13 countries with research by the Economist Intelligence Unit from 2018 to 2019. Um, more than 100 researchers spent a year collecting and validating public availa publicly available data on the subject. At the same time, the paper noted that the U.S. score was still not perfect and that factors driving down the U.S. score included the, the risks of social unrest and terrorism and low public confidence in the government. Well, the president's campaign has in recent days uh, indicated that uh, misinformation may be one of the leading causes that uh, in that lack of confidence for example, Trump's team has pointed to claims by presidential contender Joe Biden that no one on the National Security Council staff was put in charge of pandemic preparedness based on a report from May of 2018. Then National Security Advisor John Bolton uh, eliminated the uh, NSC Office of Global Health Security and Biodefense in a reorganization effort. Well, Rear Admiral uh, Timothy Zimmer reportedly was ousted as senior director and no replacement was named. Uh, well, that was apparently not uh, an accurate telling of the story. The White House says the NSC remains involved in responding to the coronavirus pandemic. A senior administration official said earlier this month that the NSC's uh, global health security dic um, uh, dictorate was absorbed into another division where similar responsibilities still exist. So information or misinformation may have contributed to this lack of uh, confidence that the study indicated. Well, the question remains now whether or not what we are called to do now is sustainable. I appreciated that Rich Lowry contemplated the subject and pointed out that the nationwide coronavirus shutdown over the past two weeks has ground parts of the country to a halt. We've probably never before in the history of the nation um, seen so much economic activity vaporize so quickly within days or even hours. The Great Depression and the pandemic of the 19th century are the only possible uh, analogs to what we're witnessing now in the 21st century. Goldman Sachs is forecasting a 24% drop in quarterly GDP. Morgan Stanley is anticipating a 30% decline. Now, these are the top uh, top line numbers on a um, 
uh, on that uh, throw millions uh, or have the potential to throw millions out of work, stress families, blight personal lives, destroy the dreams of small business owners, bankrupt industries. This is a tale of human misery, not just of um, declines in the stock market and the GDP. Now, this has been referenced by the president uh, several times over the last few days. In fact, it may have caused him to hasten what he believes is uh, an effort to uh, reverse the, the situation or at least ease out of the situation that we find ourselves in in order not to, as he put it, make the cure worse than the, uh, uh, the disease. And we'll uh, revisit that later in the program as well. Well, the federal government can alleviate some of the damage, but even the biggest, best-designed stimulus bill is no substitute for shuttered storefronts and factories. And how many times can Washington pass $2 trillion bills? Well, that's the big elephant in the room. And as mentioned, the Senate is grappling over this latest, uh, the third in a series of efforts to provide stimulus to the economy. When we come back, we'll talk about whether or not and how this might be sustainable. Um, so stay with us. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're doing something a bit different in that we are broadcasting from remote locations uh, throughout the Portland metro area, including Salem. So I hope you'll bear with us. The program may sound a little different in terms of audio quality, but we hope the content will remain the same. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday afternoon. We're talking about the steps that have been taken to... Um, prevent the coronavirus from spreading as, uh, well, as vigorously as it has in other places, and whether or not it's sustainable. As I mentioned, Rich Lowry wrote on the subject in the Patriot Post, and he points out that, no, this is not sustainable, nor will people stand for it except as a temporary expedient. The president is already expressing impatience with his own guidance against gatherings of more than 10 people for the, last, uh, for the next 15 days. If that sentiment is understandable, it's uh, it'd be foolish to give up on the lockdowns before they have much of a chance to, in the cliche of the hour, flatten the curve. So we'll see what happens. Uh, and it's important to remember that the disease itself is imposing an economic cost. It would have caused a recession regardless of government policy. Would New York restaurants really be full if it were uh, weren't for the Andrew Cuomo ordered lockdown? Or would people be eager to get on airplanes, to book a cruise, to see a Broadway show, to go to Disneyland? Some might. My guess is most would not. Well, if the disease had been left unchecked, it would have exacted an enormous price in the lives of the infected, in the breakdown of the hospital system, in the follow-on effects on people ill with conditions that would have gone untreated. No matter how bad today's lockdowns are, imagine if we decided to undertake them at a time when the U.S. already had a million cases and the healthcare system was in deep crisis. So a little perspective might be helpful. Well, the answer to our current situation doesn't require downplaying COVID-19, those dreaded uh, uh, two um, words, uh, or going about business as usual or hoping for the best. The advantage of the lockdown is that they make every other public policy option look cautious and inexpensive by comparison. What can be more radical than telling tens of millions of people to shelter in place? Pretty radical in the U.S. Our aim should be to shift from the blunderbuss solution of mass shutdowns to rifle shot remedies on the model of what South Korea has done with its widespread testing, although it has some much more favorable conditions as a smaller, more cohesive country with an outbreak centered in one church. Uh, we should focus on the production of tests, ventilators, masks, and other protective gear 
on an industrial scale. Whatever the government has to spend or do to get it done should happen, just as if we were on a wartime footing, hence the president calling out that uh, that status. Well, the first priority should be obviously uh, backstopping the hospital system, protecting frontline medical workers. But as economist Paul Romer and Alan Garber uh, argue, we need to widen out from uh, from there to create a system of population-wide testing and the distribution of protective gear to workers interacting with the public to protect against the spread while allowing for ordinary work. Now that regimen would deepen our uh, would, would depend rather on innovation, uh, cheaper, faster tests, and so on. But that's surely within our powers uh, with enough uh, will, resource, and sadly, time. Then we can begin to return to normal with much less risk, even if vulnerable populations and uh, metropolitan hotspots still required extraordinary precautions. Whatever path we do take will be costly and have its downsides, and we uh, we can know with certainty that the uh, current path is untenable, but it's a path that we must navigate as carefully as possible. Now, one of the things I mentioned earlier is that the president is talking about trying to ease things back into normal as early as Easter. Whether or not that's feasible, if it's um, advisable, is another matter, but we'll talk about that later in the program. Well, on Monday, the president asserted that he would like to see the country open for business in a matter of weeks, not months, saying that we can't have the cure be worse than the problem. He argued that we have to open our country because not doing so causes problems that, in my opinion, could be far bigger problems. Life is fragile and uh, economies are fragile, too. Well, the president further defended his uh, position, arguing that you have tremendous responsibility. We have jobs. People get tremendous anxiety and depression. And you have suicides over things like this when you have uh, terrible economies. You have death um, probability uh, in far greater numbers than the numbers we are talking about with regard to the virus. The president's senior economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, backed up that assessment, saying that we can't shut the economy. The economic cost to individuals is just too great. The president is right, he went on to say. The cure can't be worse than the disease, and we're going to have to make some difficult trade-offs. Well, the mainstream media has um, been keen to play up the dilemma by claiming that the economic uh, concerns the president has expressed are out of step with medical experts who warn that the threat posed by the uh, coronavirus is just beginning and will get much worse before it gets better. So which which balance uh, does one embrace? Well, the president's economic concerns are legitimate. They echo the opinions of many Americans, especially those who find themselves out of a job, hold up at home, and wondering how they'll pay the bills, especially when congressional Democrats elect to pad uh, the uh, the legislation with things that are wholly unrelated. Well, in fact, it's likely that one of the primary reasons behind much of the uh, media's criticism of the president, aside from their utter hatred of him and his economic concerns, is that his approval rating is rising. Well, that can be most directly tied to his handling of the China virus pandemic, as the most recent ABC News Ipsos poll finds the president with a 55% approval rating on the crisis, a dramatic increase over recent weeks. It appears that the uh, president's daily press conferences informing the public and the, of uh, his administration's actions to combat the pandemic, led by the vice president, have been welcomed by the majority of Americans. And quite simply, they see the president leading uh, the fight. Now, again, this is a political system and you can't dismiss that part of how everything is interpreted that comes out of Washington. Well, also on Monday, the president signed an executive order forbidding price gouging and um, and hoarding critical supplies. Attorney General William Barr explained uh, that under Section 102 of the Defense Production Act, the president has authorized 
uh, to prohibit the hoarding of uh, needed resources by designating those materials as scarce or as materials whose supply would be uh, threatened uh, by persons accumulating excessive amounts. Now, once specific materials are so designated, persons are prohibited from accumulating those items in excess of reasonable personal or business needs uh, or for the purpose of selling them in excess of prevailing market prices. Uh, Barr went on to say, however, uh, also assure that uh, this order did not apply to people who have stockpiled large amounts of toilet paper, for example, nor to those individuals who have long prior prepared by accumulating large amounts of goods for personal consumption. Finally, the administration will be the first, uh, will for the first time rather, use the Defense Production Act to procure 60,000 coronavirus test kits following the president's invoking of the law last week, even as he downplayed wanting to use it. We're a country not based on nationalizing our businesses, the president noted on Sunday. The concept of nationalizing our business is not a good concept. However, he did anticipate that we may have to use it someplace along the chain. Well, it appears clear that point is now and it has been reached. So an interesting observation in the midst of all of this. But again, the president making the point that America will soon be open for business and then adding the phrase, very soon. What exactly does that mean and how will it be possible? The president went so far earlier today in a Fox News town hall that lasted for a considerable length of time, suggesting that his idea was that we would allow people to um, associate with one uh, one another as early as Easter and said, wouldn't it be beautiful to see people populating churches again to celebrate the resurrection and that that would be a time to roll... Uh, to roll this out. Now, I'm not sure that the medical professionals who were with him during that uh, that statement would have agreed, but they did not contradict him at the time. All of that uh, to say the president wants to see the United States uh, open for business soon, very soon. Well, he and the task force addressed the nation just hours after the stock market suffered another dramatic fall. This is on Monday and promised that the country would soon return to business as usual. Well, things brightened up a bit today because of the coronavirus relief bill that's now back in uh, the Senate being debated. Um, But during this Fox town hall, uh, coronavirus town hall today, he called for the reopening of the economy by Easter. We have to get back to work. Um, The president said uh, during that event, um, speaking from the Rose Garden alongside others on his coronavirus task force, Uh, that uh, he would love to have a country open up and just raring to go by Easter. The holiday this year lands on the 12th of April, so that is very soon. The president argued that he doesn't want to turn the country off and see the continued economic downfall from the pandemic. He also said he worries the U.S. will see suicides by the thousands if coronavirus devastates the economy. And I just read a report earlier today suggesting that the suicide rate has already begun to go up. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of raw numbers and uh, percentage-wise, but this was the president's statement and his perspective on the issue. Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Senate coronavirus stimulus package, what's in it, um, and uh, give you an opportunity to determine whether or not you think this is a direction the country should go. Now, this is, once again, the third coronavirus stimulus package. This is different because the focus would be on uh, relief for the American people, at least that was the stated focus. Other uh, members uh, in Washington have suggested it's an opportunity to 
address a number of other issues, but we'll talk about what's actually in it and give you an opportunity to think it through for yourselves. You're on the George, you're listening rather to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break and we will be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this Tuesday afternoon. We're talking about the Senate coronavirus stimulus package. What's actually in it? We've heard a lot of the debate about it, what they're arguing over, but what's in it? Well, the Senate's trying to negotiate a deal for a newly $2 trillion stimulus package. This is the third uh, such package to provide health care and economic aid Uh, to address the coronavirus outbreak and national shutdown of Americans' daily lives. Well, some of the highlights of what's expected to be in that package, though the details could change as negotiations are ongoing, the package would provide direct financial help to Americans in the form of a stimulus check, or checks, plural, uh, sent out to many Americans, not all. The proposal would include a one-time payment of $1,200 per adult, $2,400 per couple in the U.S. and up to $3,000 for a family of four. That would include an additional $500 per child, up to $3,000. Now, Republicans have called for minimum payments of $600 to Americans, and aid would be phased down to income thresholds of $75,000 for individuals, $150,000 for couples. Now, additionally, there would be $500 payments for each child. That would establish new and much more Generous unemployment benefits by adding $600 per week to normal state benefits for up to four months and provides an additional 13 weeks of benefits to 39 weeks of regular unemployment insurance through the end of 2020 if they're sidelined by the outbreak. Now, that coverage would be retroactive to January 27th and coverage would be extended to gig workers and independent contractors. So that's one element that deals with checks uh, to individual Americans and unemployment. There's also small business support, and that's been one of the sticking points for the Democrats. An estimated $350 billion would be uh, provided for small businesses to keep making payroll. Uh, Companies with 500 or fewer employees would get up to $10 million each in forgivable small business loans to keep paychecks flowing. And the program would provide eight weeks of assistance through federally guaranteed loans qualifying employers who maintain their payrolls. If they do, other costs like mortgage interest, rent, and utilities would be forgiven. So this is very generous for small business support. Now, the bill also includes an additional $242 billion in additional emergency appropriations to fight the virus and to shore up for safety net programs. Now, that includes money for food stamps, child nutrition, hospitals, the Centers for Disease Control, and uh, public health and transportation agencies. And that figure has gone significantly higher during talks over the weekend. Now, the measure includes $15.6 billion uh, to augment the food stamp program, which helps feed around 40 million low-income people per year. Uh, Its annual budget is around $70 billion, and a bipartisan package is likely to provide far more than that figure. And then there's uh, the big company loans. This has also been a sticking point for Democrats, arguing that they don't believe larger companies, even though these are companies that employ a a significant number of Americans, um, uh, that they should uh, enjoy this kind of uh, benefit. Well, arguably the most controversial of the proposal. Well, the initial plan called for $208 billion in loans to larger businesses like airlines, which would have to uh, be repaid, and a subsequent a version released over the weekend called for $500 billion. So from $208 billion to $500 billion as the negotiations have gone on. 
uh, leaders are still negotiating the final number and how the money's, uh, money would be provided by the administration and safeguards to prevent abuses. Again, this would be loan money. It delays payroll tax payments by employers. It would um, uh, would be able uh, they would be able rather to defer payments of their 2020 payroll taxes until 2021 and 2022, assuming a recovery. And with the specter of the 2008 government bailouts still looming, Democrats say the deal provides too much support for big companies with little oversight and not enough for working Americans. House Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he also wants new collective bargaining powers for unions, higher fuel emission standards for airlines, and expanded wind and solar credits. Now, some Democrats had complained that the draft aid package didn't go far enough to provide health care and unemployment aid for Americans and failed to put restraints on the proposed $500 billion slush fund, as they refer to it, for corporations, saying the ban on corporate stock buybacks are weak and the limits on executive pay um, would last only two years. Now, Republicans are accusing Democrats of using the coronavirus pandemic as an opportunity to push their unrelated political agendas with the uh, McConnell, uh, with the Senator McConnell, rather, accusing Democrats of trying to extract concessions from airlines over their carbon footprint with the economy hanging in the balance. So each is accusing the other. Uh, They ought to be embarrassed, he said. This is McConnell. Uh, This is no time for this nonsense. Meanwhile, Schumer countered that they were dealt an exclusively Republican authored bill. We Democrats are trying to get things done, not making partisan speech after partisan speech, he said. So the back and forth continues, whether or not they accomplish anything constructive for the country, small or big business remains to be seen. So some of the things that uh, you might want to know about the Senate's giant coronavirus bill, several measures are aimed at uh, helping workers stay connected to their employers instead of losing their jobs, keeping the the workers employed both maintains income levels uh, with workplace disruptions and it avoids uh, unemployment that can cause an uh, or exacerbate the economic downturn that we are about to face. Um, It it provides for faster access for employers to credits uh, for paid sick and family leave. It would provide business loans and forgiveness of COVID-19 business interruption. It provides an incentive to rehire workers, uh, delayed tax filing, uh, individuals and households. The CARES Act includes several measures that aim to help American families and, uh, and individuals. That's included. Uh, There's added federal unemployment insurance benefits, as I mentioned. There are non-targeted checks to um, households that would be available uh, to those who are being impacted, which is virtually every household, not all, but virtually. Temporary relief from retirement account withdrawal penalties. If you need to withdraw from your 401k, uh, you could do so uh, without penalty, and I think you'd have an extended time to pay that back. Uh, There's a temporary elimination of required minimum distributions, Um, by waiving the required minimum uh, distributions from retirement accounts as well. Uh, There's um, an added charitable deduction to promote charitable giving that's otherwise likely to decline uh, with the COVID-19 emergency. So there's an incentive for people to continue uh, to give to organizations that are ministering during this season. As I mentioned, delayed tax filing for uh, big businesses. There's also the uh, the CARES Act would uh, provide help for them. And massive loans, significant uh, uh, discretion and limited conditions are a part of that. Uh, There's nothing for workers of large employers. And while the CARES Act provides substantial support and access to paid sick and family leave to workers of smaller employers, it doesn't do anything to directly support workers of large employers. Uh, This includes some of the most significantly affected workers in the travel and tourism industry. So the act 
provides too much discretion to the Treasury Department, too few conditions on businesses to ensure loans are related to the COVID-19 conditions and the loans are not supposed to be forgiven. Um, the CARES Act creates a new $400 billion authority for the Federal Reserve to expand lending programs using collateral, um, such as treasury loan guarantees. But because the Federal Reserve already has the ability to generate broad-based loan programs, it's not likely to need or use this new provision. So overall, the CARES Act takes substantial measures to help maintain employment and prevent uh, business failures for smaller employers, but it does little to help workers of larger employers who are being significantly impacted as well. The act provides significant financial relief to businesses and households, including important retirement relief, but the biggest component, not targeted checks to households, will be uh, inefficient and uh, leave Americans with a greater debt burden than necessary. Uh, it, finally, the components to a big business should be aimed at supporting workers and helping companies return to pre-COVID-19 operations as quickly as possible once the public health emergency uh, dissipates. And yeah, it will eventually do just that. But um, that's not a, as large a part of the plan as some suggest it should be, because those are some of the sectors that are being most heavily hit uh, by all of this. Well, I mentioned that there are power grabs going on in Congress, and I suppose that's not altogether uh, surprising. It's not unusual for political um, animals, uh, political parties to seek advantage under certain conditions, and that certainly has been the case this time around. But um, there's also a power grab with the Department of Justice, and we'll talk about that when we return. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, sheltering in place. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, where we are sheltering in place. If you didn't hear us in the first hour, uh, James, Clark, and I are all broadcasting from a different location. I'm doing my program from my home. James is engineering from his, and Clark is putting it all together from his location. So the three of us are not in the same location. We're following the directive from the governor of the state of Oregon, saying that we should shelter in place, if you will. And so uh, while it's somewhat awkward to be in a location other than the one we have uh, uh, shared for many, many years, we are attempting to bring the Georgine Rice Show to you just as you've expected. Now, you might notice the sound is a little bit different, and we're this is our first time uh, making this effort, so we're hoping to uh, bring it to you as clear as possible, and we'll continue to do that as long as we are called upon to remain separate from one another. That's social distancing uh, that we're all practicing. We've been talking about, of course, the coronavirus and the legislative remedies that are attempted uh, in Washington. And we know that the Senate, even today, is if they haven't already done so, because we are having to broadcast a bit earlier than uh, the live program, uh, they're attempting to resolve issues around this coronavirus uh, aid package. Uh, and, the, and then there are those, not surprisingly in Washington, who take advantage of the opportunity to try to slip in other things that are completely unrelated. Well, that's been one of the points of contention uh, in uh, in the Senate. But nonetheless, there are others who also seek opportunity to gain um, greater power for good or for ill. I suppose we'll have to decide for ourselves. Well, the Justice Department quietly petitioned Congress last week um, to grant it greater power, specifically that the Department of Justice has quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief judges to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies, part of a push for new powers that comes as the coronavirus spreads through the United States. In other words, the DOJ wants new power to essentially suspend habeas corpus whenever the DOJ 
uh, deems it necessary under emergency uh, circumstances. Well, Politico noted that the proposal, which the agency hopes to have included in the next round of pandemic legislation, will let the department and its sister agency, the FTC, add 15 days onto merger timelines during emergencies, such as disease outbreaks, natural disasters, or government shutdowns. Now, the proposal would also grant those top judges broad authority to pause court proceedings during emergencies. It would apply to any uh, status, statutes, or rulings of procedure otherwise affecting pre-arrest, post-arrest, pre-trial, trial, and post-trial procedures in criminal and juvenile proceedings and all civil process and proceedings. Now, is this constitutional is, of course, the larger question. Well, the Department of Justice proposal is troubling and arguably uh, could be dangerous as it seeks to set a precedent that during extraordinary circumstances or crisis circumstances, the government should enjoy greater power that literally strips Americans of their constitutional rights. Abraham Lincoln was wrong to suspend habeas corpus protections during a literal war, How much worse of an overreach is it during peacetime, even if it's an extraordinary national crisis? Scott Bullock, who's president and general counsel for the Institute for Justice, he warns that history demonstrates again and again that governments use a crisis to expand power and violate vital constitutional principles. And when the supposed emergency is over, the expanded powers then become permanent. It's very rare that you see the restriction of uh, powers enjoyed under extraordinary circumstances. Echoing Bullock's warning, Cato Institute Vice President for Criminal Justice Clark Neely states that if history is any indication, it is near certainty that these powers will be uh, abused and that the Department of Justice will try to hide those abuses when they occur. This is simply not an agency that has earned the kind of trust implied by these requests for increased authority and discretion. Of course, the Department of Justice is manned by different individuals over different times under different administrations, but the general idea is that the abuse of power is something that we ought to be very cautious about and aware uh, occurs with some regularity when powers are broadened without scrutiny. Ironically, the Department of Justice still hasn't fully answered for its abuse of the secretive FISA court system. And now it's asking to be trusted with even more power. Representative uh, Justin Amash is correct in responding, Congress must loudly reply no. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Again, the Department of Justice seeking broader powers under emergency circumstances. Well, as I mentioned, the federal government uh, will crack down on hoarding and price gouging schemes with the coronavirus pandemic. The president said Monday, flanked by the Attorney General William Barr. He signed Section 4512 of the Defense Production Act to prevent hoarding of personal protective equipment. Uh, We have some people hoarding, the president said in that briefing room on Monday evening. We want to prevent price gouging and critical resources are going to be protected in every form. The president authorized Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar to designate essential health supplies such as masks as as, uh, scarce to prevent price gouging. This will prevent the uh, purchasing of certain items in high volumes. Health and Human Services has not yet made any designation, but that will come shortly. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham announced the president had signed the order before the press briefing, and the president elaborated on it. The Secretary of State followed the president at the podium to talk about how the Justice Department would enforce the order. We have started to see some evidence of potential hoarding and price gouging, uh, the secretary said. So earlier today, the president signed a second executive order providing 
the authority to address hoarding that threatens to the supply of those necessary health and medical resources. The secretary um, was careful to stress what the enforcement would not affect. If you have a big supply of toilet paper in your house, this is not something you have to worry about, he said. But if you are sitting on a warehouse of masks, surgical masks, you will be um, hearing a knock on your door. Also during the press briefing, the president continuously stressed the cure can't be worse than the problem and indicated the need to soften restrictions on the economy. He didn't give a timeline, but said it would be weeks, not months, before the economy restarted. And of course, earlier today, he indicated that could be as soon as Easter. Well, stocks soared as Congress is working toward the $1.6 trillion stimulus package, a package rather, U.S. equity markets surged this morning. Investor optimism um, uh, that members of Congress will uh, overcome this, uh, their differences to reach a deal on the uh, COVID-19 stimulus package encouraged that rise. The upbeat sentiments were boosted by comments from the president who said he supports reopening business sooner than later, saying that he'd love to see the company, uh, the country rather, open up and um, raring to go by Easter. So the stocks are poised and listening very carefully, following what's being said as well as what's being done by those in Washington. Meanwhile, uh, Taiwan is accusing the World Health Organization of cozying up to China and ignoring coronavirus warnings. Now, as you might know, the head of the World Health Organization, or WHO, uh, was put into place by China. It was largely their support that was responsible for his being placed there. And now we're being told that um, he is is not um, holding China accountable and is uh, kowtowing, if you will, to China. And China, Taiwan is now accusing the WHO of doing just that. Also, congressional uh, resolution seeking international probe of China's coronavirus handling is in the offing. And in the coronavirus fight, China hasn't stopped persecuting Christians, according to a watchdog. And China's coronavirus uh, blame game is now shifting from the United States to Italy. Well, taking a look a bit closer to home, three people have uh, died here between the ages of 63 and 90 and all had underlying medical conditions. When I say have died here, I'm talking about three people who have died of COVID-19 in Oregon, bringing the state's total up to eight. The Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday reported three more people had died of COVID-19, bringing the state's total to eight. The three people who died were between the ages of 63 and 90, all had underlying medical conditions. A 78-year-old Clackamas County man died on Sunday at Kaiser Sunnyside Medical Center. He tested positive on the 15th of March. A 63-year-old Multnomah County man died on Monday after testing positive on March 16th. He had been uh, had not been hospitalized. And a 90-year-old Washington County woman died on Monday at Providence St. Vincent Hospital after testing pos- positive on the 19th of March. Three Oregonians uh, who are no longer with us. Now, one of the reasons I'm broadcasting from home, as uh, others of us are doing our jobs from home, is that I am a caregiver of an 89-year-old who has a mild uh, case of asthma, and I'm very concerned that I not bring home um, the virus. Uh, I may be asymptomatic. I'm very careful about how I approach her. She and I, even though I spend time with her every day, we're keeping the prescribed distance. I wash my hands um, religiously, and um, I'm taking her temperature daily. Uh, making sure that I open the mail um, and she, because we're being told that sometimes it can stay on the mail uh, for a period of time or packages or cardboard. So I open the mail and give her the contents with clean hands. All of those things 
Um, so trying to be very careful as COVID-19 is impacting our community. Our uh, hearts go out to the three families who have been in uh, have been impacted by this in the state of Oregon of late. So far, Clackamas County, three cases, Clatsop one, Jackson one, Marion two, Multnomah four, Washington County, seven cases of the coronavirus. Again, talking about COVID-19 in the state of Oregon. There are now a total of 209 people in Oregon who have tested positive for the virus. The cases are spread across 19 counties. And as you know, the governor announced a statewide stay-at-home order on Monday. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on what's been something of an awkward day for the first time in the history of The Georgine Rice Show, which is about 30 years. We're broadcasting from remote locations. Now, what I mean by that is James is in one location, Clark in another, and I still another. We're each of us at home and doing uh, our part to bring this program together. So if the sound is a little bit different, please forgive us. We're doing the best that we can and we're tweaking as we go. We want to make sure that the Georgine Rice Show continues to provide news and information that you might find useful. Just before the break, we were talking about what's happening in the state of Oregon and we learned that three people have died of COVID-19 in Oregon, bringing the state's total to eight. A 78-year-old Clackamas County man died on Sunday at Kaiser Sunnyside Medical Center. A 63-year-old Multnomah County man died on Monday after testing positive. And a 90-year-old Washington County woman died on Monday as well at Providence St. Vincent Center after testing positive earlier this month. Uh, Each of them had an underlying medical condition, uh, which means they were part of the most vulnerable populations. Multnomah 4 and Washington County 7. Uh, There's now a total of 209 people in Oregon who have tested positive for the coronavirus. The cases are spread across 19 counties. Well, Governor Kate Brown announced a statewide stay-at-home order on Monday, which is at least a partial explanation as to why we're all home today, limiting businesses that can stay open. The order is the state's strictest attempt yet to influence social distancing and curb the spread of COVID-19. Washington has followed suit. We'll give you details on that momentarily. Health officials continue to urge all Oregonians to take steps to protect those who are most vulnerable uh, to complications from COVID-19. Those considered high risk include adults 60 and older. That would include me, although I have no underlying condition, or anyone with a serious health condition, including lung or heart problems. That includes Dan Rice, kidney disease or diabetes, or anyone who has a suppressed immune system. People vulnerable to complications should follow federal centers for disease control and prevention guidelines to stay home as much as possible, avoid gathering. Every resident should take these basic steps to protect those who are most at risk. Of course, covering your mouth and nose when you cough and using something other than your hands, the the, uh, bend of your elbow, Uh, washing our hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. I like to sing the chorus of a favorite um, praise song. I like to recite a scripture that brings hope while I'm um, not only keeping my own hands uh, clean, but thinking about the needs of others. Avoid touching your eyes, your nose, your mouth with unwashed hands and stay at home if you feel ill. Now, we're all very familiar with these guidelines by now. But they need to be repeated, I suppose, to make sure that we follow those guidelines. Well, Governor Kate Brown today launched a public awareness campaign alongside Oregon Health and Science University, or OHSU, and Oregon Health Authority to educate Oregonians about the importance of social distancing in stemming the spread of COVID-19. Now, the campaign is a coordinated effort 
um, with uh, Executive uh, Order 20-12, directing everyone in Oregon to stay at home to the maximum extent possible. Well, the governor has asked the uh, public, the media outlets, and Oregon's businesses to share the materials posted at Oregon Health authorities website immediately materials will be updated regularly as the campaign adapts to the ongoing nature of this statewide emergency the governor said that this pandemic is a global problem but each one of us can truly make a difference it is incredibly important that every oregonian understands how each of us has a role to play in slowing the spread of and eventually containing this virus the governor said we put strict social distancing measures in place but for them to work we all have to follow them every step of the way Every single day, I encourage all Oregonians to share these messages so that everyone knows how to do all they can to help. So she stepped up her um, efforts to have an impact on how Oregonians uh, behave. Now, what does a stay at at, uh, home order mean? Where can I go? Where can I not go? Oregonians can leave their homes to go to work, obtain or provide food or to buy essential consumer goods. They can access certain essential government services and care for seniors, children, family members, other vulnerable people and livestock. Businesses that are not listed in her order, and I'll provide that list in a moment, can remain open as long as customers and employees can maintain that six feet of distance between them. Now, those can include gas stations, banks, plant nurseries, auto uh, repair shops, self-storage facilities. So, uh, where can we go? Business offices and nonprofits, um, though employees shall facilitate telecommunicating uh, to the maximum extent possible. Um, This is where we can go. Uh, Coffee shops, bars, brew pubs, let's see, they they may stay open. Bars, brew pubs, cafes, restaurants, wine bars, and other similar establishments only for delivery or pickup orders. Child care facilities with a limit of 10 children who are in the same Uh, are the same every day. Priority must be given to children of medical or emergency frontline responders, doctors' offices, healthcare facilities, and emergency services. We can go to food courts, grocery stores. We can go to pharmacies under the order. Uh, We can go to pet stores and veterinary offices. But these businesses must close in the state of Oregon. Amusement parks, aquariums, arcades, art galleries, bowling alleys, childcare facilities that cannot limit children to 10, Cosmetic shops, fraternal organization facilities, furniture stores, gyms and fitness studios, hair salons, barber shops, uh, hookah bars, indoor party places, jewelry shops and boutiques, malls, uh, both indoor and outdoor, medical and facial spas, day spas, massaging therapies. I need to get my nails done. That's a whole nother story. Museums, nails and tanning salons, non-tribal card rooms, outdoor sport courts, uh, playgrounds, pools, private public campgrounds. We cannot go to senior activity centers, social and private clubs, skate parks, skating rinks, ski resorts, uh, state executive branch offices and buildings shall close to the maximum extent possible, tattoo and piercing parlors, sorry James, you're going to have to wait, tennis clubs, theaters, yoga studios, youth clubs. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is the list that the governor has posted. Well, in her order, she wrote that while many businesses and organizations that are heavily dependent on foot traffic and in-person interactions have already closed or will close under the expanded order, other businesses that make robust plans to meet social distancing requirements and enforce those requirements may remain in operation, preserving jobs while ensuring health. This distinction from closing all businesses except for those categorized as essential as mandated in other states aims to minimize the unintended consequence. The governor said the Oregon Health Authority has the power to expand the scale of closures 
and that any retail businesses that fail to comply will be closed until they demonstrate compliance. So very specific in terms of what we are uh, permitted to do and what we are not, according to the governor. Then in the state of Washington, now there's been an issue of a stay-at-home order banning weddings and funerals to slow the coronavirus spread. Now, that has been the state of Washington, the epicenter uh, for some time in the state of Oregon. So that's been significant. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee today ordered the state's 7 million plus residents to stay home, except for essential activity, closing all non-essential business and banned weddings and funerals as the tumultuous struggle to slow the spread of the virus escalates. Uh, The statewide order allows residents to leave home to buy food, seek medical treatment, essential work and exercise while maintaining social distancing of at least six feet from other people. It will stay in place for two weeks. Washington had the first reported COVID-19 outbreak in the U.S. late last month. The virus has sickened more than 2,200 and killed 111 as of Tuesday in the state of Washington. The governor said this is a human tragedy on a scale we cannot yet project. Uh, During a televised address, he said it's time to hunker down in order to win this fight. Several other states, as you know, have already uh, issued several um, or similar orders uh, as well. Well, Governor Inslee, his directive rather expands previous actions that he took last week that ordered the statewide closure of bars, dine-in restaurants, entertainment, recreation facilities, and and others. Well, the long list of essential businesses that will remain open includes grocery stores, pharmacies, uh, banks, gas stations, Those deemed non-essential have to close by Wednesday night. All public and private social, spiritual, and recreational gatherings are also now banned, including weddings and funerals, uh, the governor of Washington said. Uh, uh, The number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the U.S. surpassed 46,000 as of today, while the death toll reached 593. So both the state and uh, Oregon and Washington have now Um, had the stay-at-home orders issued. Well, there are some treatments. Will there be some vaccines in defeating COVID-19 when we come back from the break? We'll talk about um, what's currently being worked on and what's uh, some of the trials that are uh, being undertaken to not only uh, vaccinate against the uh, virus, but also to lessen the symptoms for those who have contracted the uh, coronavirus producing COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As we are practicing social distancing and taking it to the extreme, each of us, James, Clark, and I, broadcasting and um, engineering and everything else from a remote location separate from one another. So this is something of an experiment, but we are uh, committed to broadcasting through this season of social distancing with the uh, COVID-19 restrictions put on us all. We were talking just before the break about treatments, vaccines, and uh, defeating COVID-19. The latest drama and distraction around all of this has centered on politicizing claims accusing the HHS and CDC for being slow to implement testing uh, for the infection. Now, we assume that we live in the 21st century. We click a button, the television comes on, we go to our computers, and we can have anything we want in a matter of moments. And we imagine that we ought to expect uh, that everything should be available at our fingertips but just because we need it. Well, these things require a tremendous amount of effort to produce. And uh, while this is a serious issue, impatience does not really help. 
Tests are not vaccines, they're not antidotes, they're not cures, but they certainly are instructive in determining viral spread and how to retard it. So it is an ongoing effort that uh, has all hands on deck. Well, one physician offered an assessment on the prospect of COVID-19 treatment and vaccine, something all of us are hopeful uh, we'll have access to in the near term. Healthcare providers, he says, from around the world are collaborating as never before to improve treatment results, antiviral, antibiotic, inhaled medications, connective tissue disease medications have all shown promise and the world's medical community has embraced the challenge. We get daily updates from our Seattle, French and Italian colleagues from the trenches on what is working and what is not. Avoid um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, for example. Outcomes are improving. We are utilizing this information to treat our sickest patients. There are people working around the clock to provide what we uh, need and what they hope will ultimately relieve the suffering caused by COVID-19 and ultimately a vaccine uh, that can prevent it um, uh, harming people altogether. Well, regarding hopes of a quick vaccine, he notes vaccine is many months away and double-blind treatment protocols are not being considered who uh, who wants to be a non-treatment group. A vaccine requires a stable locus on the virus, uh, no, uh, no mutation that would delete the antigen, safety and efficacy data, as well as the ability to mass produce the vaccine. This process usually takes two to five years and very few of those ever make uh, make it to the market. Approximately 87% of would-be vaccines never make it to human testing. We're attempting to greatly accelerate the process, but only so many corners can be cut if we're going to have a safe and effective product. It's worth mentioning that um, we've had the SARS virus around for over a decade and have yet to develop a vaccine for it. A daunting task, but with many brilliant minds, the human spirit and a healthy dose of prayer, we shall overcome it. As for the vaccine now being administered in Seattle, the original epicenter of COVID-19 is the U.S., uh, rather in the U.S. He adds that while the vaccine does uh, doses being administered there are being used under compassionate need basis, it will take time to know if that vaccine has any effect on prevention. In other words, successful treatments and vaccines are not likely to emerge soon. Additionally, regarding the rise and decline of COVID-19, Nobel laureate and Stanford biophysicist Michael Levitt believes the virus spread will be much more manageable than current risk assessments trumpeted by the mass media. What we need is to control the panic. We're going to be fine. The real situation is not nearly as terrible as they make it out to be. His analysis indicates that COVID-19 in the U.S. will follow a similar pattern of that in Asia and will peak sooner than thought. Let's pray that assessment is correct. And of course, that is precisely what those who are followers of Christ ought to do. We ought to be praying. In fact, the president, uh, speaking to pastors, has asked them to pray for strength. Uh, there's hardly a busier, more burdened man in America right now than the president. And yet on Friday, when he heard that Vice President Mike Pence was about to jump on a Family Research Council conference call with 700 pastors, he asked if he would join. Hearing his voice was a surprise uh, to those who were on that call. But hearing his earnest desire to stand with the faith leaders of America in crisis certainly was not. When I, um, Tony Perkins writes, when I told the president I was uh, going to be speaking to all of you, um, rather the vice president said to the president, uh, Vice President Pence said he was in the midst of an extraordinarily busy day. But he looked at me and said, I have to find time. I need to find time. To the president, he went on, the prayers of the people on this call mean everything to him. 
So despite everything facing America, the two most important leaders of this nation stopped everything to pray with the people on the ground who are ministering to their communities. Now, I don't care what you think about either of them, to humble yourself and ask for prayer, to recognize the value of prayer and the need for wisdom and a higher authority, that says something. It is a wild world, the president started. The virus, he said, came upon us so suddenly, and we were doing better than we've ever done before as a country in terms of the economy. And then all of a sudden, we get hit with this. So we had to close it down, he said, uh, wistfully. We're actually paying a big price to close it down. Never happened before. But President Trump insisted, I think we're going to come back stronger than ever before. Well, turning to to the pastors, the hundreds on the call and the 15,000 who heard it later on, the president said sincerely, I want to thank you for praying for our country and for those who are sick. You do such an incredible job. You're very inspirational people, and I'm with you all the way. You know that you see what we've done for for right to life and all of the things that we've been working so hard together. I've been working with many of the people on the call, many, many of the people. We've had tremendous support, but we are going to get over this. This is the president speaking. Well, before the president left the call, Tony Perkins asked him what he'd most like the people to be praying for. And this is what the president said in response. The health of the country, the strength of our country. We were doing something amazing, and then one day it just ended, and that, uh, that would be it. And he added that Americans would make the right choice on November 3rd. After I finished praying over the president, he said, you know, you mentioned the word stamina. We do need stamina. So thank you very much. But when the vice president took over, he wanted everyone to know the president and I couldn't be more inspired by the way uh, communities of faith have been stepping up. He talked about the congregations keeping their food banks giving and congregations keeping uh, finding creative ways to work within the, uh, the CDC um, uh, guidelines. He mentioned churches offering child care to health care workers on the front lines, contributing, um, uh, rather combating the virus. But most of all, he talked about how grateful he was to be part of an administration that values its partnership with the congregations of America. The vice president went on to say, you know, the president has said many times that we're going to, um, that we are going to bring the full resources uh, of our federal government to bear on this. But by all of uh, you being here today and by the energies and ministries that you have used to respond to the coronavirus in your communities, you're really putting your hands and feet on your faith. And you are demonstrating what the president today called the greatness of American character. And we want to urge you on. We want a full partnership with you in sharing best practices again. Continue to pray, uh, the vice president uh, urged, for the experts counseling this president from every branch of government. Remember, state and local officials, too, and people who are struggling and experiencing loss. We are both in blessing. God is merciful, uh, Dr. Carson uh, reminded us, and we will get through this. Maybe, he said, this is an opportunity for the Lord to show his power in a way that will help us return to him. In the meantime, he assured God still has his hand on this nation, and he has his hand on all of us. For more ways your church can get involved, bookmark um, uh, the familyresearchcouncil.org slash church uh, for some suggestions there. And they're going to be updating the daily resource page to help churches do that. And there are other resources. Many churches without any um, assistance from anyone at all are already reaching out into our community and doing significant things to minister the love of Christ. And I'm just so, uh, so very proud of that, uh, of that fact. And uh, to see the body of Christ on its knees and to see the impact that we can have and are having in this community as so many people are fearful and panicked 
uh, for us to respond differently, to have our eyes and ears open, to be poised to help, which is a challenge when you are also called to social distancing. But God is not surprised by these circumstances or this protocol, and he can use us in ways that perhaps have not occurred to us yet. But if we are on our knees and listening and asking, he will guide us. Uh, Maybe it's picking up the phone. Maybe it's posting something on Facebook. I've so enjoyed musicians uh, and worship leaders who are posting on Facebook, just singing a song of encouragement and bringing words of hope. Uh, What a blessing we can be and redeeming this technology that is used for so many different um, so many different things to redeem it by using it in hopeful ways. So I'm encouraged to know that the president, the vice president and others are calling upon the faith community as the church is so often uh, called to come alongside uh, on our knees and to um, bend our hands and our arms to serve our communities. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. When we return, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, our first experiment from, well, out here. My home, James' home, Clark's home. I hope, <laughs> I hope all things have gone well because we'll be doing this for some time if we follow the directives and we intend to that we've been given by the governor. Tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to talking to uh, Paul Kautkus. He's the author of A Small Book for the Hurting Heart. The book is published by New Growth Press. We're also looking forward to talking to Pastor Scott Gilchrist with some encouraging words and inspiring words and some direction for those of us who want to be constructive during this season and this opportunity that God has given us to extend the love of Christ to a community that may be a little more open to receiving it. Now, that may change somewhat, um, uh, but we'll uh, we'll let you know tomorrow. On Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Tim Betcher. He is with Cadence International. It's a ministry to the military. And, of course, men and women on the front lines of our national security um, are men and women who are also vulnerable to this very uh, same crisis. In some cases, they're separated from their families. There's concern about what's going on with them. We'll talk about all of that. But in general, uh, how to minister to those in uh, in uniform uh, I, as you probably recall, I have a nephew who is serving in the Navy. He's stationed uh, abroad, and he is the captain of a naval vessel. And I thought a lot about the confined spaces that he's in, but he is a man of faith. And um, we're just trusting God with his health and his life. And um, I have a, his wife is a medical professional, and she works in the department that comes in most close contact with those who are concerned about whether or not they have COVID-19. And Um, having sufficient supplies and managing the stress. Uh, There's just a lot. And I know we're all praying for people we're concerned about who are on the front lines and serving our communities. And we're going to talk with uh, uh, Tim Betcher about how to minister effectively to those who serve us. And then on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. I am convinced there is lighter news out there, and we're going to find it and focus on that on Friday. We'll also share with you our interview of the week and um, uh, make sure we share with you the headlines as well. Well, it was over 2,000 years ago that Jesus warned us in the 13th chapter of Mark that as we move closer to the end of the age, there would be wars and rumors of wars, conflicts, natural disaster, religious persecution of the believers. And he warned, um, his warnings read like today's headlines. What you won't find in the newspaper or on cable news or anywhere else is what Jesus instructed us to do during these challenging times. First, he told us not to be anxious or be fatalistic because the end is not yet. 
Matthew 24, 6. Now that can be challenging for us. We fear what might come, maybe more so for others than for ourselves, our, our parents or our children. But Jesus warned us not to be anxious. Now that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us because under certain circumstances, it's impossible to not have that natural reflex of anxiety. And yet he's telling us that by the power of the Spirit that he has given to reside in us, we can go through life and this circumstance without anxiety. Well, he says there is still much to do. The gospel must go to all nations. Yes, we will encounter difficulty, but we are not to be anxious, Philippians 4, 6. We are not to be afraid, 2 Timothy um, 1, 7. Instead, we are to be ready to be engaged, be in it for the long haul, and endure to the end. Now, that may sound like a challenge, but it's also a great privilege to have the love of Christ, uh, the hope of salvation, and the opportunity to share that with others who need him. What a blessing. What a blessing. And that is precisely what we are called to do. As men and women of faith, this is for us certainly a time of uh, great uncertainty, but it's also a time of great um, opportunity. So I hope we're taking advantage of the opportunities that we have, first of all, to demonstrate that we are not anxious about the future, that we are trusting in God, that somehow the fruit of the Spirit manages through all the headlines and the details and the precautions and the social distancing and the sheltering in place, that somehow the fruit of the Spirit is emanating from us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, that these are the things that we are exhibiting. Now, this is the work of God in us. It's not a matter of natural capacity. It's not the force of personality. It's not the force of the will. This is the working of the Holy Spirit in us. So if we are spending time on our knees and in his word, he will do that in and through us, and we can be a blessing in our community. So I'm excited about the, the opportunity to do that. There are some among us, as I mentioned earlier, who are grieving the loss of family members. There are some who are struggling uh, because of, uh, of the disease or the, the virus. But in every situation, we can be a comfort and a help and an encouragement and a light. And so we need to seize this opportunity, as I'm sure you are already doing. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with uh, Paul Talkis. He's the author of A Small Book for the Hurting Heart. So I hope you can join us. We'll also bring to you the headlines as they unfold every day. Virtually, the president and his coronavirus team are presenting new details and directives and uh, so hopefully we'll have more details. Also, we expect, well, at least the optimistic view is, we expect the Senate will pass a coronavirus package. And as you probably recall, we're pre-recording today's program just um, about an hour earlier. So if, in fact, that has uh, passed during the course of the four to six hour program or the four o'clock to six o'clock program, we'll provide you with the details uh, tomorrow when we come back for the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program and engineering the program from his remote location. And I want to thank Clark Hilton, who is also engineering and uh, doing all of the other technical stuff that makes it presentable for you. Keep us in your prayers, and we will certainly keep you in ours as well. Remember, social distancing, but we can be close to one another in other ways. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.